Welcome to Talk Design. I'm Adrian Ramsey, and with the Architects Marketing Institute, I'm going to bring you 12 special editions. These 12 editions, the architects who are presenting their homes on the Austin AIA Homes Tour. They're all very inspiring, and there's some secret special tips that you'll get towards the end of each podcast. I hope you're as inspired as I am. My guest on Talk Design today is Burton Baldridge from Burton Baldridge Architects in Austin, Texas. And Burton has an amazing home on the AIA Austin Homes Tour this year, which is uh, virtual, of course. And I've taken the time to interview him and he's going to tell us about the house and a little bit about his practice. And I've been in his work many times when I've come on tour to Austin, and it's always a joy. It's uh, it's always beautifully curated. It's well thought out. There's a lot of sensibility around the ecological sense of a home and uh, the sustainability of a home. It's not a big thing that they crow about, but it's more a thing that's just solid value that always happens. It's a project doesn't happen without it. So, Burton, welcome to Talk Design. Thank you. Um, I'm going to kick right off with a question, which is going to be about the house. And the house that uh, you're going to see on the tour, guys, is going to be the Barton Hills Brick House. Um, and it's a high modernist style, and it has some amazing brickwork in it, and there's beautiful, beautiful timber work as well. So my question is going to be, can you give us some pieces about the house? that when you go on the virtual tour, you should linger in or discover or look for that otherwise could be easily missed. And there might be things that are physically might feel different as well. And give us some pointers. Well, I mean, there are, there are several in that house. Um, I certainly would wander around in the virtual sort of Matterport and look at all of the places that the brick finds its way into the house. We're calling it the brick house because it became sort of the central thing about this house. Um, my firm typically thinks that a mass, a wall is something. So if it's outside and it's brick, it's going to sneak inside and you need to, you know, we don't turn into drywall just because we've crossed a plane of glass because this wall's a thing. Um, one of my favorite things that you probably will not be able to see on the tour in any way, shape or form, but is my favorite hidden thing there is that it is a pretty large lot for central Austin. It's about 75% of an acre wow. and it, it sits on a cul-de-sac. So it's a very compressed frontage, but when you go into the back and you can see this, there's this multi-leveled structured uh, landscape in the rear. But beyond that, and I think you can get there in the model, is an urban meadow. And the house just emerges from the urban meadow because it's a sloping side. So this doesn't show as a wall. It just kind of slides out of the grade. The thing that you can't catch that is awesome, and this was just a great surprise, is it's an urban meadow of enough scale that there are always the sound of birds and bees and insects and things. Um, I have a recording, uh, if anybody's ever interested, I'll, I'll try to get it out there. It's 
just amazing. I've never heard anything like it. And it was a complete surprise. Um, I think the other thing that I just really love about the house is the way that the uh, landscape devolves into much more like exterior rooms. Um, and a lot of this was a function of the grade. Our client really wanted an expansive sort of intimate landscape. And they were describing it as being something like Palm Springs meets Marfa. Right. That's where they, they wanted this thing to end up. And as a result of the grades, this lot really slopes off and every foot we go out, it would drop another foot. So if we didn't do these terraces, uh, the landscape walls at the end would have been about 15 feet tall. But what it does do is it creates all of these little exterior nests of occupation that I think are lovely. Wow, cool. um, and then one other thing that I would definitely look at, um, the central stair is conceived of almost like a vessel, like a cabinet that's just been sort of dropped in that you're walking through. Um, and a friend of mine did the carpentry and the floor on it. If you're looking for it, you'll see that it was coordinated in such a way that the boards coming down the wall trace across the steps and trace back up the wall over the balustrade and back down and it does it all the way through. Um, it's easy enough to draw something like that. <laughs> you really do have to have um, some pretty talented uh, carpenters to do it. Um, but it was because unfortunately there's no standard board width that actually works out to an 11 inch tread. Yeah. Um, but it, it was, it was, it, it's pretty cool. Those kind of things, are, you know, that what make living, uh, you know, that, that, if you think of architecture as art, um, those are the, the discipline pieces that make it into absolute art and subconsciously your mind might see it um, and it doesn't know why it feels so good. But then when you physically recognize it, you go, that's why it feels so right. That's why it doesn't, yeah. there's no jarring or anything. When you say it's like a vessel dropped into the property, um, Skylit from above, what, what, how did you do that? So it created the vessel feel other than just with material. Well, the, it, it backs up onto the, um, onto the fireplace. So one side of it's brick. Um, but instead of having the balustrade be a separate bit, this was all detailed as a box that dropped in. So it's on the wall. Um, it's, it's effectively all sides, even where it doesn't need to be. So that it really is gotcha. just like a, a, a sort of a, a, a Chinese puzzle that's, that's been dropped been, into the You have been lowered into the space. And it stops. It stops cleanly at, you know, 36 inches. It stops at the balustrade. Yeah, right. Um, right. That's really cool. That's really, um, again, that detailing is so much fun in the sense of, um, it transitions people and the stairs are a transition. You know, they transition you from one point to another. Um, you said before about uh, you've got a recording of birdsong um, and and the bees. Was there an opportunity to bring that noise, that, you know, that, that ambience into the home when designing it? Mm -hmm. how, how do you do that? Um we certainly think about the sort of indoor outdoor nature and the types of plants we're planting. Like there's a Palo Verde in one of these little uh, 
exterior living rooms, which is a sort of a desert plan. I mean, I think they're prehistoric. I think they've been around for forever. Um, but they have these diaphanous leaves that make us, not really even leaves, that make a sound. Um, and they don't block out light. They provide some shade. So we're always looking for things um, like that, where there's this experience of the way shadow is going to play across a wall or the way any of these things might operate in the house. Um, I would love to say that the idea of the urban meadow that I had known that it was going to be this ambient environment, environment back there that had a sound and a feel to it. Um, I think my thinking was far more linear and a little almost shallow in that it was like, we don't want any nature of a mannered landscape beyond this thing emerging out of the ground because it just slides out of the ground. And all of the, the landscape that's up top is held within structured walls, these beautiful board form concrete walls. Yeah, right. um, and, you know, it makes these places and it's, it's kind of a magic act. Uh, so we really wanted it to be wild out there. And I have to hand it to our clients uh, to let us take it that direction because, you know, a lot of people don't want to give their yard over to an urban meadow. I hadn't known that once we did that, that it would be filled with, you know, bumblebees and, and so much, birds. so much, there right. all this kind of sound. I would, I would do it again in a heartbeat. So to your question, did we, you know, was that a big thought? No, should have been, should have been, but it will be next time. Oh, yeah, I was about to say it, it become amazing um, because now you have the knowledge of it. Uh, one of the things that'd be really cool is supply that track to me and uh, I'll put it in the podcast. We might finish to, it, finish the podcast just with that track. So it can just tail out to that track, which would be really nice. Yeah, it's on my telephone. It may not be the best audio ever, but you can you can probably you know what? Find yeah, it. with somebody there's be a sound engineer somewhere that can pick it up and do tricks with it. Um, that's, oh, it's good. It's good. Yeah, because um, you know a, a house like this is of its landscape because you got to do the meadow. It it it's of its landscape, not just on its landscape. It's um, it, mm -hmm. it, yeah, I love that integration of it. And so those are things that. Yeah, it would be hard probably to experience in a virtual tour, but you would really get to experience them. But with 5,000 of your closest friends on a weekend tour when you're walking through. Of course. <laughs> probably still pretty hard to hear the birds. I was about to point. say, the birds will have left town for that. Um, yeah. Those are really cool, man. I really like that. Um. When it comes to this house, you know, like as, as an architect um, and as a firm, you have a, a client philosophy. How did your client philosophy um, and your design philosophy mix when it comes to this particular property? Well, I mean, we do have a, a, a strong philosophy about the way not necessarily the what of the design, but kind of the way we, we go about it. Um, as we discussed, I did have a prior career as an attorney and it pokes its way into our practice in little ways. But I think the, the most important thing is, is that we're very data driven um, in that we will start any project with a series of interviews. And until I can effectively write it back in prose and describe the house they're they're talking about and i'm not talking about necessarily 
um, kind of dumb things like I want three bedrooms yeah. and I want to check the bathroom and not that stuff. But some of the things that are a little more aspirational and it's not until we can nail all of the hard data, but also describe what it is we're trying to achieve and why we're trying to achieve it, that we start to put pen to paper. And that is certainly what we, what we did here. As I said, um, the female part of the client team really wanted to, they, they travel a lot. They are in the music promotion business and they spend a lot of time in LA and, you know, she really likes Palm Springs and likes some of the, uh, uh, you know, hotel environments there. But, but when we, we spoke, there's a lot that can occur there that does occur there that really can't occur uh-huh. here. Um, because we have a different ecology, we can't really do the same sorts of plants and make it feel like you're impossible. So instead of trying to mimic that, we came up with this idea of this being, you know, Palm Springs meets Austin meets Marfa. Nice. And that's kind of where this all came up, came about. It definitely played out through the entire um, project. There were really interesting things that they had requested. They definitely wanted a nuanced indoor-outdoor house. Um, they wanted to be able to entertain. Um, there, are, there are smaller things that are in there that were sort of baked into all those initial interviews. He's a, he's a gamer. Oh, right. I think while he's, while he's talking to these people, he likes to you know, play Xbox, but it needed to be in a certain place and kind of hidden away. And it's this, this, this other sort of thing that they had going. And I think she very much wanted us to allow on the interior to not design it so tightly with details and materials that it shut her out of the ability to put her more eclectic stuff in there. That's cool. Which was really important. Yeah. That's when it becomes a home as over a house. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that definitely is how we go about design. Now we don't really walk into any of these projects rarely. I mean, it happens every now and then you walk to a site and you're like, wow, I can, I can see what this wants to be. Um, Usually it's a, it's a, you know, bunch of interviews with our clients and then a bunch of time spent at the site to try to come up with some ideas. It's kind of um, a translation of both things that the site speaks to you and the, and the clients speak to you and then something starts to evolve. Um, but very personal to the so, client. Absolutely. And, and we are fortunate enough that I, we've been doing this long enough as Baldrige Architects that, you know, when you first start, well, when I first started, there was no Pinterest, but they'd show up with a big sheath of, of images and stuff. And I think a lot of clients that I initially started with had almost a Mr. Potato Head idea of how to build a house. Like, stick this here, done. Stick this over here, done. Um, That's why they did turn up and, to talk to you, though. <laughs> exactly. At, at this point in time, fortunately, our clients are at least to some extent self-selected. Yeah. They have seen things that we've designed or been in the hotel or been in, you know, the restaurants or other houses. And there's a reason they're there. So we do, we are fortunate enough now to have sort of an element of trust so that we can, we can talk to them and through these interviews, figure out what the boundaries of where we might push this are, what, what's too far. What's, yeah. Where do they want to be? Yeah, where, uh, yeah, where's their comfort? And as well as like um, being, they know you're taking them on a journey. It's uh, 
Right. That's nice. That's really nice. Um, with that, you know, you do commercial work, um, you know, like the hotel and other stuff and restaurants and things. And, and you've got an eye for doing, you know, unusual things like, you know, the, the, the tree houses and stuff like that as well. How does the commercial work relate to, and, and where are the lines blurred to the um, residential work? How does that go about? How, well, what happens with you guys with that? Because you've got this body on each side of the sort of the ditch and they both have different functionality whilst they have um, similarities as well. I would agree. I would say almost without exception, though, we started doing only residences, except for the Kimber Modern Hotel, which is a little resident scaled hotel. Um, almost all of our commercial work, we have people coming to us asking for a residential quality out of the spaces, right? I don't think anybody is, is really coming to us for a big bunch of neon or something, you yeah. know, like that. So, for instance, when you go into the refurbishment that we did of this 1902 building at St. Edwards University, um, we had these sort of terminal living rooms, we called them. And we were trying to give this basically staff building a residential quality, um, you know, and that's why when we found that the subfloor was made out of longleaf pine, you know, now in there, yes, it's a commercial building and we've got fire devices everywhere and there are classrooms, but there are these residential nooks. If you look at Gardner Restaurant, there, you know, while a little more austere and Scandinavian, that was definitely about having a residential sense of craft and quality. And I would love to say that the, the nexus is that we're doing these different sorts of things, but I think that they're much more similar to us than, than it might seem at first blush. Yeah, right. But obviously with the hotels, Hotel is a perfect program for us because it combines, you know, it's effectively residential. Gotcha. And one of the things that's lovely about hotels is that they have to monetize the experience. Consequently, it's unlike, for instance, single, uh, multifamily housing where they're just selling off parcels of space with as little design as they have to pay for. Yes. Um, yes. So we we, I think the common thread is, is that all of the spaces that we have been fortunate enough to do on the commercial side, whether it's milk and honey spas or any of that, is that there is uh, an appreciation of experience and the quasi-residential nature of what they're asking for. I think that uh, the point there that's so interesting is the lines of the, the, well, the word experience and people like commercial when it's people centric has shifted so much to being um an experience and mm -hmm. as opposed to just a function and with that experience where as humans we're looking for more entertainment the internet's taught us that um but we look for that in spaces that we never would have looked for before we would have just accepted um but mm -hmm. we're looking for texture and that sort of sense of change in, in spaces. And we want to go to places for the experience, um, restaurants, hotels, 
um, you know, look at Liz Lambert's um, em- exactly, empire. Yeah. It's based on experiences. And, uh, yeah, it, it, I think that it's a beautiful thing that we've probably really gained in the probably the last 20 years. And things like Airbnb have accelerated it like crazy. Um, you know, Absolutely. you don't go for accommodation. You, you, you go for the experience and you choose the accommodation around the experience you want to have. Um, it's such a Definitely. change. Yeah, I, I, I can see how it really is a beautiful blend. So tell me this. You studied law, we know that. Um, but back, you said back when you were a kid, you decided that architecture was for you. What was that? What was what happened that you went, oh, I'm going to be the architect? You know, you could, you're a creative guy. You could have done a lot of things. Um, and obviously academic enough to get through law as well. So, um, yeah, what was the spark that uh, threw you towards architecture? So, it's going to be difficult to isolate a single spark or like this was the moment. Um, I always, from as long as I can remember, wanted to be an architect. So my brother used to, and I, I lived in Fort Worth. We were around architecture. Mm-hmm. As, as I told you, my mom was a docent at the Kimball Museum. Yeah. So I was in these amazing architectural spaces. I was frequently in this one I am pay house. Um, and they obviously resonated with me, but even playing with Legos when I was a, a, a child with my brother, we would use the Fisher price people and build like two to three Legos high, effectively build floor plans of these houses that the people were going to be occupying. And we try to one up each other and have better toys in our house, which is uncannily like what some of our projects end up like. Um, but I was literally building floor plans with Legos with gaps in them for doors, for doorways when I was a tiny child. Yeah. Right. Um, and I've always, I just always wanted to, wanted to do this. Um, I was around it, you know, Fort Worth at that point in time, for whatever reason, had such just a beautiful residential architectural stock. There's a Paul Rudolph house. There was, you know, it, it, it was amazing. Right. Um, I, I had a friend named Wade, his house, it had to have been a known architect. I don't know who it was, but you know, it was just beautifully done. I would watch like the Incredibles. It was definitely like one of those houses that they lifted and put in, you know, yeah. a sort of a kitsch 1950s set. Um, yeah. it was a, it was a cool place. That's so cool. That's, uh, you know, knowing that, that it was what you were going to do and, um, also, not only that, like just having that experience of building it, you know, in Lego, um, or yeah, but but also with the sensibilities of what needed to happen. Um, I've often thought, you know, you know how you make beautiful models um, of of things of homes that you're going to do and stuff. And I've often thought, wouldn't it be cool to be able to just uh, custom send the plan to Lego, and um, they send you back all the pieces. And uh, you've you've got a you know like a, a Lego thing, and there it is. Yeah, you know, their computer sorts it, and all the data comes together, and you've just sent them your schematics, and boom, it comes back, and there's your Lego house. And what's I what think size? You, <laughs> you just found the cottage industry. I'm so there. It's just so cool, wouldn't it be? It'd be so neat because then it would not only um, 
be this kind of fixed moment of something, but it would also be something that became a toy that people play with. Although I do go to houses myself and I will see cabinets full of Lego that are locked because dad is the Lego freak and the kids aren't to touch oh, it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, one, of the, the, one of the principal designers in this house with me uh, is partner Brian Bedrosian. And I've heard him actually have his sort of philosophical debates with himself about, about who those Legos are really for. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. I remember the first house I went to to look at to, to do a design for them. And um, I came across this. There was a bar in the house and uh, opening out onto a back patio and games and all that kind of stuff in the pool. And there was a cabinet and it had all these amazing Lego models in it. And I was like, oh, wow. And this is the first experience of this. And I'd seen the Lego movie, didn't even put the two pieces together. And I'm standing there and I'm going, wow, looking at it all. And I'm thinking, these are some of these are modern pieces. Um, these guys don't have kids that they've grown up and left. And I'm looking and I went, so the Lego and luckily I didn't put my foot too far in my, you know, down my mouth, down my throat. Um, and, and, um, his wife kind of recoiled and said, yeah, that's a special thing. <laughs> and I'm like still scrambling in my mind as to what he meant, what she means. And, uh, he goes, it's a thing I do. And I'm like, do you get them out and play with them? And he goes, no, 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 the cabinets are locked. Nobody gets them out and plays with them. <laughs> I just build them and put them in the cabinet. I'm like, cool, man. That's really, yeah, that's great. And then had a big laugh about the Lego movie. Um, and, and his wife was saying, yeah, I'm like the kid in the Lego movie that can't touch dad's Lego. But uh, of course, it was so, yeah, just so classic. But, you know, it sparks probably a lot of creativity in so many kids. And, you know, especially when it's those built structures and stuff um, that, you know, they, they, the people who do it naturally start massing, you know, um, blocks of stuff. And then they start questioning why it works a certain way. And, and but it's physical. It's, um, it's muscle memory and it's, uh, you know, it's neural pathways that then just can be grown from there. So it's a pretty cool thing. Absolutely. But part and parcel of, of like wanting to be an architect, we were always playing with Legos, but I was a big, you know, I made model rockets. Yep. Um, and Could have ended I up at NASA. I, I launched you know, like maybe two or three because I would obsess over getting the craft right. And then they'd be perfect. Of course, you launch them half the time. You never got them back again. <laughs> had this shelf where they just all were. So I was kind of that guy. That's fun. That's really fun. the age of 14. <laughs> That's cool. I love that. I love that little insight. It's uh, it's about how you play with um, And even now, like, you know, when you create something because you're creating experiences um, for, you know, either homeowners or for people to visit, um, you're still in play mode. You're still playing. And that playfulness means that people can come over and play as well. So when it's a client philosophy thing, those people come to play as well. You just got to work out the rules of the game and, um, That's correct. and let them come and play. That's fantastic, man. I'm so looking forward to going through the house. Um, next weekend, 
that's right it's all happening it's all happening and uh, when i'm in austin next we've got to catch up that would be great it would be i'll be there next year i'd like that very much okay yeah, for sure well it's provided we can travel we'll see but I, I can't imagine we can't so i'll be there for it next year um i'll leave it at that and we will uh if you send me the bird song and the bees and stuff recording I will get that onto this as well because I think that would be really special for people to hold on this piece and just listen to that because it, it'll be okay, it'll well, be beautiful. It's probably large. I'll dump it in a Dropbox sure. and send you a link. Right? Perfect. Perfect. Awesome, man. Okay, great to meet Burton, you. Likewise, awesome. I'm looking forward to meeting you in person. Take care and have a Very great tour. Okay. Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of them, someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.